0: content warning for our listeners. This episode contains discussion of gore, substance abuse, violence, assault, graphic sex, and genital mutilation. Welcome to Call Me Maker, your unofficial
1: True Blood Rewatch podcast. We're your hosts, Michelle Martinelli and
0: Simone Less. And we're all you got. Spoiler free.
1: Today we are discussing Season 1, Episode 6, Cold Ground. This episode was directed
0: by Nick Gomez and written by Ryle Tucker. Callers, we're doing things a little different today because this one's important. And we thought, we got to get one of our girls in here. We got to have one of our sisters. One of the sisters to really bring us in. So Michelle, you want to tell them who we got on the pod, our very first guest? Precisely. Since today's episode centers around emotional eating
1: and the juju with which food is made, we couldn't have this discussion without bringing into the mix our friend group's resident foodie, Miss Willa Young. Willa is not only one of the hottest people we know... I know. She is also a senior copywriter and brand strategist for Wonder, which my New Yorkers may already know or be familiar with if you've been to the Upper West Side recently. Wonder is a food experience, either in person or by delivery, that brings together the best dishes from the best restaurants across the country to one accessible food court style location and approach to incredible dining. And most importantly, Willa is also a diehard True Blood aficionado, and we are so honored to have her joining us today. Yay!
2: yay Thank yay, you so yay, much yay, for yay, joining yay. us today, Willa. I'm absolutely titillated and re-virginized. <laughs> oh, Thank good. you so much. Yes.
1: yes. When did you
2: first watch True Blood? Were you a virgin viewing it the first time? Yes, I was. I, was, I feel like it was the first show that I remember covertly watching, Mm. like sneaking out late at night, looking through HBO. And it's the first one I saw that. And it's also, I feel like the first show I remember watching and thinking, oh, this is like adult themes. They're so overt with their themes on True Blood. It's not a subtle show by any means. I think when I saw God Hates Fangs, I was like, I got that. I clocked that. And I felt so smart for the first time. So in many ways, it was like my first adult show. I watched it pretty close to when it aired. I was maybe like one season behind. Did someone behind.
1: introduce you to it or did you find it on your own?
2: My sister and I found it together. It, it was a, a dual search. She first discovered it. My sister was always great at finding shows that I didn't watch before. And then she got me into it. And then I did not tell my parents I was watching it and just kind of crept into the living room at night and Would watched episode by you ever watch it together? My sister and I, yes. But it is one of the things that my sister is a very um, squeamish person and especially about sex and like talking about sex. So I also recall it being the first time where it was almost an uncomfortable viewing together. Something that we felt okay about watching on our own, but being perceived watching it and like... Clocking that perception was very strange to experience the first time with my but sister. But it bonded
1: you together for life, yeah?
2: <laughs> oh, completely.
1: So my next question for you, Willa, is what about the series has stayed with you or made you a fan? What about it resonated where you were like, oh, I'm hooked?
2: Yeah, I think, one, the setting. Uh, I feel like we don't get a lot of really nuanced looks into the south and southern culture and I think especially with a creature like vampires that are so often romanticized and made to seem like these exotic smart chiseled people putting them in this very rural setting and really taking a fresh look at what vampires could be and what they practically could be in human society in southern kind of the southern perspective I found really interesting and I loved the camp of it all, for lack of a better term. The There's nothing subtle about that show. There's nothing discreet. It is loud. It is brash. I think I just kind of became obsessed with this sort of theater that it Yeah, it it's gave super us.
0: theatrical. I think that's something we come back to consistently. Yeah. And something that I didn't necessarily think of the first time, but watching it now, I'm like, Oh, that's like written for the stage. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely.
1: Okay, now we want to appeal to your ethos as a food professional. Yes.
2: I need yes. all of
1: your thoughts on Merlot's as an establishment, on the menu.
0: Yes.
2: Yes. Oh, so much. So, so much. I think the importance of Merlot's and the way they designed it is, I think there's a Merlot's mm-hmm. in every town. I think it's really important to make it generic in that sense where anyone can be sort of immediately dropped in or have an equivalent in their own place they were raised. But Merlots to me, I describe the restaurants that are like Merlots as iceberg lettuce restaurants where like iceberg lettuce is the best lettuce and we pretend that it's not, but it is. And sometimes we use something else. We'll put a, a butter lettuce on a burger because we think it makes it better, but it doesn't. It just makes it fancier. Merlots is the kind of place that understands that there's no reason to get a fancier lettuce. We're just going to put some iceberg lettuce on a plate. And that's, I think, what gives it this sort of inherent comfort. And I think the other thing I love about Merlots is... There's like green flags for me in restaurants that have nothing to do with food, that when you walk in or when you're passing by, you're like, oh, this is going to be good and here's why. And I think the one that Merlotz has is its serving wear. These like pizza hut cups, these like camp, <laughs> camp, and I mean like we're camping in the woods, aluminum forks that are like clang, clang, clang. And the cheapest, sturdiest plastic like or like melamine plates you've ever seen. I think I've always said that the Merlot's ranch looks so good, but I think most of it has to do with the little dishes they're in, those dumb little plastic bowls. Anytime you get ranch or a dipping sauce in those bowls, it's going to be good. So I trust it inherently.
0: As soon as you said iceberg lettuce restaurant, I said, oh, my friend Will is the smartest woman I've ever met. Yes. No, I really resonated with that.
1: Met. It was very tangible. <laughs> we knew exactly what you meant. Yes. You got it. And you I got do it. remember you know. some propaganda you know. when we were growing up about iceberg lettuce not being healthy for you. Do you remember that? And, and it's, it's just, just not just true. it was part of like the kale propaganda, but did everyone else big hear kale, that? Big kale, big romaine. They're <laughs> in on it. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
2: big romaine, big romaine. romaine. Oh
1: my god. Like zooming out a little bit as far as food in the true blood universe, it's not just merlots. Obviously, this episode especially is really heavy on the food. And Mm -hmm. I like. I don't want to wait yes. too long. We can get into the pie. But I want to hear more about <laughs> what role you think food and eating plays in the True Blood universe, especially since so many of these relationships are based off of vampire human or those who feed and those who are fed upon.
2: Totally. I, one of the things that always fascinated me about True Blood is I. it's the only vampire show that I know of that when vampires are talking about their need for blood, They don't call it thirst in True Blood. Mm. They call it hunger. I'm hungry. Rather than everywhere else, all the other descriptions, are always like this parching thirst. And I think something I've always loved about True Blood's approach with vampires is it's not this sort of animalistic rage urge. It's more of this like Mm. gluttony. And I think a lot of that's also how they associate drinking blood with like sex. And it's such a sexual act in True Blood in a way that isn't in like... Twilight, for example. But I think it's this combination of like indulging, like indulging in every, in all of the things you love, whether it be sex or food. But I also think food is so entrenched in the South. It is so crucial. It is such a way that people show how they're feeling. So to have a character or, you know, a, a group of people whose sensibilities when it comes to food are so different from everybody else, I think it's a great way of like separating them and showing their differences and showing how the people of the South can't reach out Mm. and relate in the same way they would with other people in their communities. And
1: remind me, your relationship to the South...
2: Yeah, I went to college at the University of Texas. And I was very fish out of water there for a long time. It was a big culture shock for me. And there was a lot that I loved. And I have a a great appreciation that I have a much more nuanced opinion of the South than I did because I grew up in LA. There's a lot of the terrible things you hear about it are true, but there's a lot of really other interesting cultural things that are very infectious. But it, it gave me appreciation, may not be the right word, but it gave me an understanding of how people operate there in a way that I didn't have then.
1: Totally. I thought it was college, but I also didn't want to be wrong. So thank you for <laughs> taking yeah. us through and also letting the callers know, too. I'd love to get into the episode Let's a little go bit. Let's, Let's go. do it. Let's do it. Something I love about this episode structure that I think is unique is it appears to be more like a series of vignettes, whereas previous episodes are very like Mm. we cut from one location to another, to another, to another, and we're changing scenes, we're changing characters almost every time. Mm -hmm. We really live in one setting for a long time in this episode with Mm. many like sketches in between. For example, this whole first beat, is all at Grant's house after she's been murdered with Sookie. Yeah. But within that, we have, like, four or five scenes between Sookie and Bill and Bill and Sam Sam and and law enforcement. Yeah. So I just kind of want to talk about each section. I feel like that that makes sense for the structure
0: of this episode. I love that. Yeah. So
1: if we're doing the first, like... We are at the Grand's home. She has been murdered. This mm-hmm. ending of the night from the previous day that we saw in the previous episode. Right.
2: Something that really struck me about this do you guys ever think about how much more uh, visually violent yeah. this death is as opposed to the other ones? The other ones, of course, the act itself is incredibly violent, but there's no real marks that we see on them. A lot of them are like in bed or in this kind of place where they look like they're just slumbering and they're beautiful little angels Mm -hmm. who happen to be dead. But this one, and with this character that we really associate with like innocence and goodness, is killed in a way that is so much more visually jarring.
0: I was struck by just how much blood is included. So much blood. So much blood. And just the sheer volume. Sookie's slipping on it. The cat is lapping at it. Why is there so much blood on this well, kitchen well, floor? Well, the coroner even says
1: like, oh, it's cut to the bone. You can see she was holding up her hands to try to defend herself. And so not only is it visually so much more graphic than the other deaths we've been shown thus far in the show, Mm. but also like describing the death in that way, like
2: emotionally, and it
1: takes our imagination to a much more graphic place
2: too. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing I don't really understand is they imply that this death was maybe an accident or a mistake because it was supposed mm-hmm. to be Suki in the room, or that's what they assume. But the way that Adele was murdered, it doesn't feel like a oh shit, murder. It feels like rage and it feels so full of emotion, so much more even than the past ones. But I wonder if that's just a choice because Adele is this person that the community observes as Mm -hmm. like free of sin. And so creating this awful hellscape that she had to endure makes the murders have like more gravitas or more Mm -hmm. impact. Totally. I
1: I do think that's a storytelling device. It just pulls on our heartstrings in a way it doesn't with other characters. Like if this same murder had even happened to Dawn, I think our response viscerally as viewers would still be a little different. But because it's
0: grand. Yeah. Yeah. It has so much impact. Absolutely. I am so mad at Sam. I'm so mad. I've been mad. And I am mad once again. He and Bill doing their whole hissing contest on Suki is one thing who is visually so shaken. She's literally in shock. And Sam deciding as he sits beside her, he knows full well that Suki can read his mind. Being this lustful, like your skin's so, so... Put
2: it away. If there is one Sam hater alive, it's me. Really, I've been a Sam hater forever. I cannot stand this man. Oh my
1: god, speak on it,
2: please. Go. To me, he, Sam Merlot is that guy who looks in the mirror and is like, "You're such a good guy," <laughs> and he just believes that in his skin. And that gives him this sense of entitlement. He feels entitled to so many people and to treatment and to things that like he has no business coveting. He just gets in my skin because I've met so many men like this who are so convinced Mm -hmm. of their own goodness, but do nothing to really deserve it. The fact that Sam has had like implied sexual or romantic relationships with Mm -hmm. half of his staff- I'm like, at some point, I don't know. Go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, like don't, don't do, do anything, anything else. Literally, yeah. Please stop.
1: And I have to give Bill his credit here too because when they have their little face off, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Bill is the one to say, Suki doesn't like decisions made for her. He's not like necessarily saying like, you can't come anywhere around her. He's not laying down any type of law like that. It's more so like, no, I think Suki should make her own decision.
0: Yeah. And Sam's
1: basically saying, well, I don't. And it's like, okay, then like, you don't really value her
0: needs. Yeah. Which has been made evident time and again.
2: He even says like, I know who Sookie is. Like you think I don't know who Sookie is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you? I don't know if you actually do. I think you've just sort of invented this Sookie that mm-hmm. you want in your head. And she's not becoming the person that you have imagined or not acting as she, as you imagined. And now you're pissed, and now you're confused, and now you're expecting something different. It's like Absolutely. I don't think you know her I think that's at all. totally
1: falling within that nice guy trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Perfect. I want to pivot to when we're in the kitchen with the sheriff and the detective, Bud and Andy, because he tells the story about the wife who blew off the head of the husband. Mm -hmm. and that I think is a really interesting point because as you both mentioned this episode is far more graphic and far more violent than other episodes and Bud bringing up that story and saying that instance for him was more shocking than this one I'm going to read a little theory because who are we if we don't have some feminist theory but this is something that I just would love to hear you both speak on or what your opinions are about it but I think this point is very salient the idea that violence committed by women is somehow scarier than the reverse so this is from an essay by Mimi Marinucci, and it is called Feminism and the Ethics of Violence, Why Buffy Kicks Ass and it's very specifically about Buffy and how she is violent in the series of Buffy but there are other points made in between about sexual oppression and racial oppression and so there's a small section I'm going to read here for us a similar double standard surrounds the issue of violence in response to women's oppression. Women's uses of violence against men draw far more attention than men's uses of violence against women, despite the infrequency of the former relative to the latter. Consider particularly the public outrage when Lorena Bobbitt took a butcher knife to her husband's penis in 1993. While there is no denying the brutality of her actions, there is also no denying the comparable brutality of countless men who use violence against women at a rate of 5.9 million assaults per year and that statistic is taken from the U.S. Department of Justice back in 2000. So 23 years ago, we can imagine what it might be now. Uh, The severity of Lorena Bobbitt's violence was far from unique, but the reversal of gendered expectations rendered it highly visible. Also consider the critical response to the 1991 film Thelma and Louise. Once again, the severity of the violence was unremarkable, but the gender of the agents of that violence was quite remarkable. Even assertive attitudes amongst women, without any corresponding physical violence or threat thereof, are misidentified as intensely violent. For example, women who are verbally critical of sexism are often accused of male bashing. What this accusation overlooks, of course, is the distinction between the literal and prevalent bashing of women by men, on the one hand, and the figurative and far less prevalent bashing of men by women, on the other hand like racism, sexism exploits the moral structure against violence to its own advantage." So I bring this up because I think Bud is sort of a figurehead for this whole thing, and I do think True Blood makes a very strong decision to have constantly women being victims of violence.
2: To me, what struck me is like what you were saying, Michelle, is this sort of inherent fear of women having more power than men, all the expectations that men have of what women can do and what women's limits are, when they are able to kind of breach that understanding and commit something atrocious, it feels like something on a systemic level rather than, you know, something individual. And that feels like a threat to men yeah. and to patriarchy.
0: It's interesting because I feel like. The vampire community is an instance of a historically oppressed community, yet somehow also physically capable of being the oppressor. But then I'm thinking about it, and I'm also reckoning with all of the violence against women that is consensually enacted by vampires on these women who are in sexual relationships with them. And in a way, Dawn, for instance, I view her as very powerful for co-signing that violence against her. Mm -hmm. What I meant to say earlier, True Blood consciously leans into this Mm
1: trope, whereas Buffy consciously leaned against it. Mm -hmm. But... Even, for instance, in the last episode when we saw Bill's origin story and how he became made vampire, Mm -hmm. I think it's meant to be more terrifying because it was a woman who did it to him
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: because the violence was so unexpected. Sure. And so I think that's them using this like patriarchal structure that we're so accustomed to to scare us more, to make it more terrifying.
0: Go with me on this. Could we think that there's a certain level of gentility and grace that vampires inherently have? And those are both, I would argue, are both seen as more feminine traits and qualities. Mm -hmm. That there is something innately, divinely feminine, let's say, about vampires. I Uh, would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. That yet they are objectively the more powerful being versus this like very hyper patriarchal, aggressive, masculine society. Mm -hmm. And it's like Bill is... The more demure, quiet, methodical versus Sam, for instance, who's like, bur, 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 and I'm good, she's mine. I, I hear
1: that, yes, but also I think it's super interesting you're bringing that up because, yes, those are typically identified as more feminine qualities, mm-hmm. but literally, the act of feeding on a human in this true blood universe and in most vampire universes involves sticking your fangs in them so literally penetration. Yeah. And that that does feel, you yes. know, hyperphalic to
0: me. Sure.
2: Totally. If I could jump in on that, and something I find interesting about true blood vampires specifically is that they're less animalistic and more like the succubus, where it's really intertwined with sex. And something we'll see at the end of this episode is mm-hmm. the yeah. consent. And then with the enthusiastic consent, the sound of being penetrated by fangs is orgasmic in nature. But you can imagine that if you don't have that consent if you don't have that enthusiasm that it is an inherently violent act in the same way it can be with sex that you don't have to con- yeah, you know absolutely
1: consent for. i 100 agree i do think like there's a sexual assault and consent analogy to be made between the two certainly and we don't know yet we're all still speculating who our murderer is mm-hmm. but bill said in the previous episode all signs to Point to him being human mm-hmm. and this violence wrecked upon Grant does feel very human because it is so graceless. Mm. Whereas you said vampires mm-hmm. tend to like mm. have more of a finesse about their killing. Let's move on to the wake the next day yeah. at Grant's house. And I do love Mm -hmm. this shot. There's some interesting perspective moments in this episode too, but following the tuna casserole in is, I love that.
2: The thing that I love about that shot is it's the first shot is voyeuristic. It's you are walking into someone's grief and you are the person Mm. walking into the door. And I, I feel like, That's the, this whole wake is just peeking in where you shouldn't, not minding your business. Exactly. No one in that town is. Absolutely no
1: one is minding their business. Maxine, the most gracelessly. I do have to give Anna her flowers for the reaction when she, when Maxine takes the pie out of the fridge. That resonates so true to me as grief because you just have those wildly inappropriate reactions. Why are you
0: laughing at me, Simone? I'm laughing because I do agree But it is such a soundbite moment in my head. and I can see it. I can hear it. Her being like, this is grand's pie. Like the way, and the way her physicality, it is very messy. And she's clearly doing an excellent job portraying a person grieving. Huge loss but i just see her mouth agape and her eyes so wide and her teeth acting and like that's why it tickles me i love actors who aren't afraid to be ugly and i think it's a really ugly moment it is a very ugly moment
2: yes and hand acting she's hand acting out the wazoo you know she's like not using any of her fingers to hold that pie it's just this manically like extended fingers but to the this is grand's pie thing this is grand's pie is one of those quotes that like my sister and I have that is not, you know, the quote from true blood. It's I think it's one of the most unhinged line readings but like it's correct. If anyone's going to be like if my sister takes my leftovers <laughs> out of the fridge and starts eating them I'll say this is I grand's pie.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I love In that. that. Callers, please welcome that into your vernacular. I'm obsessed.
2: Oh and then Immediately after, when you start hearing the, the thoughts of other people, all their unhinged vile thoughts, did you guys clock that one person said... Crazy as a bed bug? Yes!
1: Yeah. What does that mean? I mean bed bugs are fucking crazy, man. They're wild. Bed <laughs> <Pet laughs> bugs <laughs>
2: are nuts. Yeah, that's not, not so. a
0: colloquialism I'm familiar with. No. Maybe because we're afraid of them here. Yeah. We they give they, them the they spark too much terror. Yeah. Genuine terror. Yeah, in New sure. genuine terror.
1: <laughs> yeah. When they take Suki upstairs for the girl time scene. Yeah. Those are yes. like some really beautiful, quotable lines yes. of the like, stop trying to be so damn appropriate. This is not appropriate event. I think that's just like so beautiful. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, something that we used to say when I was in college is that people in the South are nice, Mm -hmm. but they're not kind. I think that Lafayette and Tara are kind, Mm -hmm. but they're not nice. They're not going to be polite. They're not going to close their mouths. They're not going to bite their tongues. They're going to say how they feel, but it comes from this inherent place of like goodness and sort of Resolute love for each other. They are the only people that are actually doing anything beneficial for Suki in her time of grief. They're the only ones who are contributing yeah. anything meaningful. Just, I, I'm in love with this trio in this scene. They just.
0: I also really love her reminding yeah. Suki not. To perform her grief, which is vital because they are all looking for a show down there. I also love the line if she talked any more shit, she'd be a turlet. Yeah, <laughs> really good. And turlet tickles. Yeah, the pronunciation of Yeah, that. the dialect coach, this episode was really
1: logging some time. I have a fun fact. For the entirety of season one, there was no dialect coach. Making
0: it up. Shut up! No, because
1: they had no idea the show was going to be successful or not, so they weren't putting that much of a budget into it. So there was no dialect coach season one. The actor who plays Renee talks about how he coached the Cajun dialect
0: on his own, like hired someone on his own. I was going to say- Paid out of his own pocket. If he came up with that out of his own brain, I'd be like- No, uh, for subsequent seasons they did.
1: But I feel like in this season, especially, you really notice everyone's take on like the Southern Louisiana dialect is very different. Yeah, they're doing Mm -hmm. broad Southern- (laughs) Broad, big strokes. Big strokes. And unrelated, but similarly- Apparently, talking with the fangs in your mouth was exceedingly difficult. Sure. And you can really hear Malcolm and Diane struggle with it. Like, they're lifting a little bit, if you listen. Yeah. Whereas, like, other characters, like Bill, had a long time to get to used to them, and you don't hear it as much.
2: I appreciate the biblical accuracy of the fangs, but they look absolutely ridiculous when, like, they have to do anything else other than, like just have their fangs out. When Bill tries to kiss with the fangs, when they try to talk with the fangs, it is a struggle. They, They have
0: one job, it's one function, and it is bite. But my next topic
1: I'd love to get your thoughts on, the idea of this bad juju cooking that Lafayette talks about. What are your takes as a food industry professional? Do you believe
2: in like what we
1: feel is infused into food?
2: It's funny. I don't feel that strongly that you need to like put love into your cooking, honestly. But I think the bigger thing here is thoughtfulness in cooking and thoughtfulness in the things you make for people and why. My love language has always been gift giving. And I think it's because it's a way to show people you know them. I and mean, show people that you took the time to understand what might make them feel good and what might be representative of what they might need. And when you are coming in to give food to people, you have to be thoughtful about why you're giving food to people at a wake, you know, when you're sitting Shiva, like this is food that is supposed to make somebody who's grieving's life easier. But all of the food that they sent is so egocentric. It's these kind of big gaudy displays mm-hmm. of I know how to cook. And I know the whole town's gonna see this dish and they're gonna know that I know what I'm doing. And that's not actually serving the person that you are giving food to Mm -hmm. at all. I think you have to be intentional about like, this person is not gonna have time to cook let's give them something that's like frozen that we can heat up quickly that can fit into the fridge or maybe it isn't fridge dependent. You know, like those are the things we should be thinking about when we're cooking for someone who needs our help or who is grieving. Not I make the best tuna cheese casserole
1: the damn Yeah, Maxine even town. says, should I have made my red velvet cake? And it's like, no one needs cake right now, Maxine. That yeah, would not be-, be helpful. She says
0: that in direct no. relation to wanting to see blood. She's in- taking inspo from blood spilling. Yep, Get- mm. come off it, Maxine. Maxine? yeah, yeah, literally. get fucked. Get fucked,
2: vaccine. Yeah, and there's also like some great restaurants where the people are terrible. Where like the cook is grumpy and mad. You are there, and the food is so, <laughs> yeah. so good. Yeah, I don't know if
1: it's across the board, but I do think it's a really interesting concept. I had a formative totally. experience when I was probably like 23 at one of the first restaurants I worked at in New York. And I had a manager and he's a black man. And I think that's relevant because I think this is maybe something that is very crucial in black culture, specifically this concept of like putting love into your food. But he was a great manager and he was always really staunch about like making sure everybody else was taken care of before him. So he would normally eat his shift meal like at the very, very end of the night. I remember I was there one night closing and he puts in his shift meal maybe 15, 10 minutes before the kitchen is about to close. And the line cook like threw a little hissy fit about it. He was a really young guy, like maybe 20 at the time. And he was just like pissed because he already started cleaning and he didn't want to make another dish because it was dead and there was no one in the restaurant. And the manager was then like, you know what? Then no, don't make it. I don't want to eat it if you're going to make it like that. And the cook was like, no, 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 man, it's fine. I'll do it. And he was like, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm not going to put that in my body. I'm not going to fucking eat that. And I like just remember watching the entire exchange and being like, whoa, I've never considered that deeply when I'm eating out, especially like what type of energy I'm consuming in addition
0: to the actual food I'm consuming.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's such Mm -hmm. a fascinating story.
0: I think most people that dine out don't have that cognizance. I me. mean, I certainly I,
1: don't most of the time. I love a Burger King drive-thru as much as the next girl and I know that shit's not made with love, you know?
0: Yeah, I only think about it in terms of cooking amongst friends and loved ones, but it is interesting to put it in context of any restaurant. Are we ready to move on to the funeral? Let's go to the
1: funeral. Yeah, I think we have to. <laughs> Descendants of the Glorious Dead extras were really getting in their hours for this episode.
0: Everybody's there nice and Suki doing her insane speech do you ever try to put yourself in that position of wondering what it'd be like to try to deliver any anything with all of everyone else's thoughts ruminating within you not to mention that there's some of the most dark and insidious things about you as a person. Mm-hmm. I'd lose my shit too. Mm-hmm. I'd scream at everyone. I do
1: think that's something, because I'm sure you know Willa, but there's sort of like the True Blood fandom as a whole kind of hate Sookie. I think that's something yeah. that's really lost in translation from the book to the TV adaptation. Where in the book you just get the inner monologue in a way that even the most brilliant actress is not necessarily going to be able to bring to the screen. And I feel like so much more of Sookie's behavior is justified in the book by her inner monologue and by seeing everything through her eyes. And I find her so much more sympathetic now having read her than I did when I initially watched the series. Mm,
0: That's
2: good. I don't know. This whole scene is nightmarish. You know, how some people feel about, like the Scott's Tots episode <laughs> of The Office where it's just you just squirm yeah. in your seat to watch that whole thing go down. I feel that way about this this scene. It is just nightmare fuel to your point about doing something that is impossible without, you know, everyone's inner monologue in your ear. And then also knowing that the majority of people there wish you had mm-hmm. been dead. Uh, also that you are sitting next to your brother who just assaulted you. And then you're sitting next to this family member mm-hmm. we don't know much about yet, but clearly has caused a lot of anger in Silky that she doesn't feel should be there and is kind of sees that and is immediately like, oh shit, I have to go up on stage and talk now. There's a lot unraveling just as she's doing this very like pivotal, scary thing it's about speaking about the person who raised you. I had a hard time watching it again. It's one of those things where sometimes I fast forward the scene when I'm doing my rewatches, but I was like, can't do that this time. You definitely can't. My shoulders were at my ears the entire time just with tension. Mm-hmm. Awful. Yeah.
1: I want to pivot to this question of family you just brought up because I think that is asked twice back to back when we had the scene with Jason and Sookie and then the scene with Letty Mae and Tara. Mm-hmm. I think this episode is asking a question that's asked in all of my favorite media, like all of my favorite plays of what do we owe family? What are we responsible to them for? And that's a question I have no answer for and have struggled with my whole life. And I think it's really interesting to see these two scenes answer it in very different ways. Yeah. And, you know, Jason has a clear stance. He says like, you have to forgive. That's what family means. Yeah. And so he says, you don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I don't have an answer either. I think about my own family and I think about personal experience, especially surrounding like coming together over grief and watching how that transforms relationships posthumously. For instance, my dad and his mom didn't have a great relationship while she was living. And then he absolutely struggled with the loss of her. And that was something that I then had to watch, which was his own me feeling I needed to be there for someone who I felt wasn't there for me at the right times. Mm -hmm. And his viewpoint in her dying and then subsequently after her death. He lauded her as if she was a saint. And that's not to say that you can't have respect for the dead and you need to immediately rail on people for how they wronged you in their life. But the stark shift from the reality of a dysfunctional relationship that's then been completely glossed over and the near is she was a saint. She was the kindest, most generous. And it's like some things are true that are positive about grandma. There are also a lot of things that all went through together and they are negative and unflattering. And that is okay to hold space for both of them. Mm -hmm. And you didn't even necessarily
1: hit on this as your point, but also like the obligation you felt to be present for him and support him in a way that you hadn't necessarily
0: felt supportive. Oh, 100%. But that also was like, at that point I was all we had. And then I, and that's literally a line that both of them say. That's all, that's all we have. And I thought about that when I heard him say that it's like, we're all each other has. And I do wonder that sometimes I'm like, what if I didn't?
2: I agree with you both that it's kind of impossible to answer. And I think that there isn't really a correct answer. The two things that I've been thinking about when you guys were speaking was one, I think we tend to give family members more grace One, because we see them in all of their sort of dirty secrets more than you would maybe your friend you don't spend as much physical time with or have not seen kind of every minute of their growth with, but also because there's this idea that you have Mm -hmm. to forgive your family. The idea of cutting ties with family feels extreme in a way that with friends it feels less about, even when that might be the right course of action. The other thing I was thinking about with specifically... Suki and Jason is even though these are two people who have spent their whole life together, this scene really struck me that like, they don't really understand each other and they don't seem to have a ton in common situations like this when you lose family member or something traumatic happens sometimes they say like that binds you or that pushes you apart i don't know if that's happening there just i think it just sort of unveils who they are and how they react for me jason is a is a guy who everything has gone his way everything unfurls naturally for him throughout his storyline here you just see Things not working out in the natural, easy way they always have been with his experimenting with V, with the girls he was dating. And then now he, in his grief, did something abhorrent to Sookie and he's kind of appalled that she doesn't immediately forgive him. He seems so befuddled by her still having anger. (sighs) towards him
1: there's a really brilliant choice here and it might be a chicken or the egg thing we're like i don't know if this is ryan quantin or i don't know if this is the customer but his suit is like too big and ill-fitting and after he and Suki <laughs> have that fight he kind of like whimpers and pulls on his coat and he looks like a child in that moment and you really see like how immature he is and how he is not developed into a full-grown man and, like, still needs someone to take care of him. Yeah.
2: Totally so true.
1: And then if we... Transition to Letty May a little bit because she brings up a lot. And uh, she has her whole monologue where she talks about Gran, which was apparently the audition for that character. Was oh, no that kidding. monologue? Yeah. Like obvious why she booked it. It's very powerful. Oh, yeah. But then my favorite line she has in this episode is like, I tried those AA
0: meetings. It was a cult. It was a cult. <laughs> well, also, <laughs> even just a beat before that. Maxine inviting her to the descendants of the glorious dead yes! a black woman in the community to the descendants Unhinged. of the glorious dead. I'm
2: like, do we know what we're talking about? Absolutely insane paper. And did you did you clock that like flower uh-huh, confederate yeah. flag? I always just kind of sometimes Forget that, like Adele Stackhouse, the nicest woman in the world, and then you're like, oh god, there's another Confederate flag. Oh god, (laughs) we're going to another Descendants of the Glorious Dead meeting. Quietly, her huge
0: character flog. Yeah,
2: I definitely want to talk about the A of it all though, because, um my running joke I've said a million times is my mother is the grand high supreme witch of AA. My mom holds distinct power in the Alcoholics Anonymous community or her community at least. And so I can firmly say, yes, it is a cult, but (laughs) it's this thing though, that I think people who suffer with addiction can have a hard time, even when, you know, find a way to get past it or you're in recovery. It's hard to go back to your normal life, especially your normal social life. When a lot of those things tended to be centered around drinking, my mom always talks about how I grew up in this, you know, upper middle-class sub. Suburb area where there were these like Chardonnay moms. Mm. You know, they'd go and they'd play cards and they'd drink Chardonnay all night long to sort of escape the doldrums and the ennui of this suburban life. And those were my mom's friends you can't go back to that. That, that. that that was a friendship that was centered around drinking. And one of the great things about AA is that you find people who also can't go back to that, but still want to socialize and still want to have fun. So my mom has found ways to have parties and celebrate holidays and celebrate birthdays in a way where everyone is sort of involved in the idea of not drinking and finding other ways to, to frankly mm-hmm. spend time. We spend a lot of our time drinking as people who do. It is a cult, but in some ways I'm like, like... Okay it's a good cult or like there are things there are uh reasons why gathering together in that sense and holding onto those people so tightly yeah, yeah. Be, i mean i 100
1: agree and like it is something i'm super fascinated by and interested in but i do think especially for people who don't have a religious foundation like there's something really important about the ritual and going to the meeting and meetings mm-hmm. are always structured the same way no matter where you go and you know these people share your
0: values mm-hmm. i appreciate that there's There is a sense of religiosity that makes it structured and therefore is comforting. But I know for me personally, I still struggle with things that are centered around religion. I feel or centered around like a higher power narrative yeah because more often than not it's centered around a christian god
2: that's my mom struggled with that too my mom it took my mom a long time to figure out a way to make a work for her because it requires you to right. believe in a higher power and that's never really been my mom's MO and she had to kind of figure out a way to believe yeah. in something but not in this sort of Christian centered yeah. way that they wanted her to And
1: like pivoting back to the show. I do think it's interesting that Letty Mae, as someone who is so religious.
0: Yeah. Can't tolerate AA. That's what such a funny bit for me is because she does say how it is so cultish. And then within this, nearly the same breath is telling her daughter how she has a demon. Yes. Inside oh, her. I love it. I a love demon? the, the a, demon inside
1: me. A, de- me. a demon? Well, this is also an argument I've had many a time with my own mother about like addicts and are they responsible for their actions or not? Or you can replace addicts with the severely mentally ill. Like, Mm -hmm. do you have to hold these people accountable? And her answer is no. And my answer is yes. And we've just gone at this many, many times. Mm -hmm. And Tara's having this argument too. And her stance is very much yes of like, The last time you saw me, you hit me with a bottle like that just because you were so drunk and you don't remember doesn't mean you didn't do it. Yeah. And she's not afraid to hold her accountable. Yeah. But again, it's campy and over the top. But I sort of love True Blood having this representation of alcoholism or addiction as a demon that lives inside you and you
0: are like completely out of control of what they make you do yeah yeah there isn't anything necessarily wrong with her as a child of God. She isn't ill. Mm-hmm. she isn't suffering from an illness addiction. She simply is just possessed by an evil force.
2: Totally. And I think that like addicts can become mm-hmm. very good manipulators mm-hmm. to get what they want. And yeah. I think this is one of those times where you see, even immediately, Tara's like, this is absolutely ridiculous. But then as Letty Mae starts to talk, you can see Tara soften a bit. And then when Letty Mae is like, it's very expensive. And then it's like, oh, right. I get what I'm here again. All of this, all this, the reason you're here, the reason you got up on that stage, the reason you're talking mm-hmm. to me now is you want my money. And that's what it boils down to. And I can really feel the disappointment that Tara may have. I think she still has so much hope that her and her mother could find, you know, some healing. And then again, rug. Totally. I think that's
1: so spot on because we see her like still wish that her mom could be the person she deserves. Letting may even says that and uses it to her advantage to manipulate
0: her. Let's, before we run out of time here, the pie, we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. I struggle with the consistency. Callers, as you may or may not have heard on one of our previous episodes, Michelle is allergic to. Oh both yes, yeah, strongly allergic. So, so I've never are... eaten a pecan pie. I'm taking both of your words. Which I for think it. is also a stunning thing for you to be a part of this discussion and never have eaten a pecan pie. I'm not saying that you no, have but I've tried into a dessert before. So. No, you... <laughs> pecan pie. I'm sorry, is very good. It's arguably my favorite pie. It's delicious. Yes, but it's never like a creamy
2: thing. I am so prepared to speak. I have a page of notes just on the pie. The pie. This is the most insidious prop work in cinematic history. It is an affront to the culinary arts. It is an affront to grandmothers and piedom in general. Listen, you have to you have to start with the crust first. That's the most anemic crust I've ever seen. I don't think they baked it. If they baked that crust, it was for maybe seven minutes. And then instead of like a normal pecan pie, it's a sugar syrup. So you it, there's no cream in it at all. You're totally right. And you mix the like the nuts with the sugar syrup and then you bake it and it kind of sets. But it appears what they've done is made approximately three quarts of jello butterscotch pudding
0: <laughs>
2: and dumped it into this underbaked crust and then put raw pecan halves on top of it. The drag them! Drag and, them! <laughs> It it is insane. No self-respecting Louisiana grandmother would ever make this pie. This is the most egregious representation of of pie making I've ever seen in my life. And it's funny because like we haven't talked about how she eats this pie yet, which we should talk about it. But like you could tell Anna Paquin is hating every bite of that pie. (laughs) She is swallowing watching her swallow is it's a labor that has not been endured for hundreds of years
0: It also goes back to our conversation about the place people cook from what they put of themselves in it If I'm to believe that that's the pie that Gran made the fuck is wrong with Gran This is why I need your
1: perspectives because as someone who physically cannot eat the canned pie Every time I watch this scene I cry I think it's so heartbreaking ingesting the last of Graham's love. And it goes on for so
0: long, too. It really
1: does. So long. And there's something like true blood does a lot of that where like it makes a scene way longer than it needs to be or like the whole aids burger scene does nothing to forward the plot. it's just there yeah and they really but essential yeah and they really don't care about like spending that time to just be with the characters and not necessarily have anything important happen and this is one of my favorite instances of that but seeing your vitriol for the pie has is
0: sending me well that i think that that's important to acknowledge that like it, the pie is wrong Wrong. The scene is heartbreaking in the way that we cry for our heroine and she is, you know, these last vestiges of her grandmother's existence. But that pie's fucked up.
2: <laughs> the is fucked up. And, okay, so you see her eating so many, so many scoops. And I will call it scoops. You know, she doesn't get into the crust. She just kind of skims the layer off and then eats it. And then we get a cut and we see Tara and Sam. And we come back and the whole crust is gone. But she... In theory, if she ate this the way she was eating this, she just ate a belly full of pudding <laughs> and then ate the crust, which I'm like, okay, yeah. Gran had some issues she had to, we have to discuss, or maybe she should have discussed, but so does Sookie in terms of their relationship with food. That's it fucked is. up.
0: And the logic of eating nearly half a pecan pie to I'm about to get railed. About to get fucked. For the first time, never have I ever thought I'm gonna house half of any dessert and then be like, ah, feel my oats and put on my 18th century nightgown. Thank
2: God, thank God, it's an Ampere waist nightgown because her gut, her gut is out. Owl- <laughs> And it's stuffed to the gills with pudding, raw nuts, and raw dough. And she's about to get dick down. Girl, cover up. Cover yeah. up what you can. But I still worry for the aftermath. The aftermath no, cannot not gonna be not going to feel good. good. I
1: mean, especially, and this is really graphic, but like the physical sensation of having penetrative sex for the first time is so uncomfortable. So to be doing that on a stomach full of butterscotch pudding pie is vile.
0: You think she would tootin'? <laughs> you think she would tootin'? <laughs> and do you think he has toilet paper? Like if she had to excuse Wait, herself- like, does he See, have what you That's a, a great knees? question. I don't think... He doesn't have a refrigerator. I'm worried. I'm worried. That's a valid, valid concern.
1: I'm also concerned about the fact that it's still supposed to be summer in the South and they're on the floor next to a fireplace.
0: But the thing is, we I can think about all of this logically as a 30-year-old person watching this. Yeah, yeah. When I was 15... The way I was swept up, the way I was like, touch it, touch it, touch me watching this. That's my polite way of saying, I think I've masturbated to this scene. Yeah, we, we we were following you, but thank you for okay. saying it out I'm saying the quiet part of <laughs> that I was
2: obscuring. Um, absolutely. And I think part of it, like all the candlelight and the way how Sookie's face is kind of like, airbrushed and fuzzy it's very mm-hmm. Dracula coated the whole scene this like red leather mahogany laying down there with the candles it is this is mm-hmm. Gary Oldman 100%. in the layer. for sure
1: absolutely I'm with you Simone as well that it was like a formative sexual experience for me as well in terms of consuming this media because I then had the image in my brain of like oh, this is what sex is supposed to look like. Yeah. Is is this romance novel version of it? It's this scene and the other one that is tattooed on my frontal lobe is from Cruel Intentions with Reese Witherspoon, and literally, like, the song Colorblind playing by (laughs) Counting Crows. You know I love Adam Harris. (laughs) Count those
2: crows. Count them.
1: I was like, oh, that's what sex is. Whereas, in reality, it looks a lot more like Sam and Tara in her terrible, like, motel room-esque place that she is living.
0: Yeah. That's awesome.
2: Yes. And you know what it also the the one very realistic part, though, is the front shot, like the close up shot of Bill's face when the fangs come out and he's just like, (laughs) he's making a face that is like a platypus breathing air for the first time. And I find that to be (laughs) accurate to the human sexual experience. The
1: timing on the soundtrack too in that moment is exquisite because I think the lyrics are I want all of you. As she's taking in the fangs and him in his full expression of vampire and then continues to consent to let them
0: consummate their love. Now, here's a question. Did you ever want to get bit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Willa, I'm so
1: sorry. You don't have to answer that.
2: did want to get bit. Um... <laughs> I just have to think about that. In my head, I'm like, oh, no, of course not. But like, is that just me being demure? Maybe, like, I don't, maybe just I don't little. know. Maybe, maybe, just a, Simone, maybe just a little.
1: Simone, I'm
0: reform this I question don't. for you.
1: Being that this scene brings up a lot of awkwardness, first times, tension, and revealing desires for first times, were there things in your first sexual experiences that were surprising or that- no,
0: I genuinely met. I mean, just we, bit. Okay. Just well, I think my,
2: my answer will answer both. I think something that we don't think about or we don't consider before we've had a lot of sexual experiences- is that like we don't know how to do it? So maybe I, my my thoughts of not wanting to get bit it would be because I don't know what it'd be like. Sookie makes it sound like, oh yeah. But like <laughs> I can't imagine it's actually fun. But I mean, the thing that comes to mind is my famously my first blowjob story. I desperately wanted it to happen. I was like, yeah, I'm about to do it, and he's gonna love it. But I didn't know how to do it well, and I didn't know our anatomy as humans very well. And so this man who was young and nervous and had a bit to drink could not tell me that there was no way that he was going to complete. So I sucked this man's sick for 45 a minutes. a war crime. It's too, so, so, so. And he, he didn't pull down his pants all the way. He had just unzipped his jeans. And so I thought, I have to have that entire penis entirely in my mouth the whole time. And so I am slamming this thing and my chin is hitting his zipper over and over and over again for 45 minutes. When I came up to finally say, I can't do this anymore. And he was like, that's fine. And his eyes bug out. It's because the repeated hitting of the zipper, my chin had become Costco ground beef. It had been chewed up and spit out. And I'm like, did you like (laughs) that? Oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> and he was like, um, I'll walk you home. Thank you so much. And he was clearly- like, oh. He didn't tell you you were bleeding? I could—I hurt, but he bugged out. And it was one of those things where ah. he was embarrassed because he wanted to perform. I was embarrassed because I, I didn't understand why nothing was happening. It was just sort of like a, let's get out of here and let's take her home. Let's make sure she's okay. I didn't understand the extent to which I was injured until I got home. It, uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the world, but it's just, I think that when we see these amazing romantic first time mm-hmm. scenes and so much media, everyone seems so competent mm-hmm. at what they're doing. When most of the time, like we are extremely incompetent at giving pleasure to each other for sure. a long time. And that's yeah, all I have to I say I agree about
1: wholeheartedly. That. And it does set us up for a little bit of disappointment because I certainly art directed my first sexual experience.
0: Counting Crows was playing. You a- know, if you were to pick one of the two of us of whose <laughs> oh sexual experience experience at counting crows in the background I think most people would say me no it was me and that's only because of think. that scene in cruel intentions that's and like I wore white
1: I did the whole thing because I really wanted it to be like symbolically meaningful. That's,
0: that's <laughs> Guess so what? It wasn't cute. though. You know, Forrest. like Taurus like, <laughs> Libra moon. I was like, wait, this actually aesthetic.
1: doesn't feel romantic or fun
0: in any way yet because you
1: don't know what you're doing.
0: Yeah, um, all these things I've done. By the killers was playing nice, and I was in the back of a a Ford uh, SUV um, because red white and blue these colors don't,
2: don't run, run. It, it don't run were you run. on beat to i got soul but i'm <laughs> not a soldier.
0: soldier you know what we were it wow that kind of sounds cooler than it was <laughs> it mm-hmm. often does i do want to say for my part i did genuinely mean did you want to get bit though when i was hand to God, God, like my virginia no team, just like ever did you she makes it look very pleasurable do you mean by a vampire?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I thought you just meant like in life in general. No. Oh. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> no, I meant like two fangs pierce your skin. Your oh. blood comes out. Someone's suckling at it from you. She makes it look hella fun. I never considered it, to be completely honest. Oh, Okay.
2: <laughs> well, I think the last the last shot in this episode is to me like the iconic shot of True Blood, which is just Bill's mm-hmm. mouth sucking Sookie mm-hmm. off for the first yeah. time, if you will. And this sort of like lapping, licking thing, it makes it so much less like teeth forward and and very like tongue yeah. lick forward, which means. I'd say I I think I understand any impulse to want to get big thank
0: you for fielding the question yes I
1: uh, concur with Willa I'm so sorry I misunderstood your question I thought you just meant like have you ever wanted to be nibbled on at any point in no your, uh, like, I mean I do that history?
0: whenever like,
1: yeah I, I, that's why I was a little confused by it because I was like I don't know sure no yeah. I'm talking like Pierce you're talking yes yes full yeah. vamp well <laughs> let's wrap this up and make our our for what we find to be the hottest moment of this
0: episode. Yes. This is hottest moment of the app. You have a minute to defend your case on what you thought episode six hottest moment was. Your time, Willa Young. Your time starts.
2: The hottest moment of this episode was uh, Jason Stackhouse's bare butt Mm. post-coitus. I think Jason Stackhouse has butt of the century, plump little butt. Uh, There's something that's so funny about this scene too, or this one little clip, because they're face down, ass up if you will, but like usually when you sleep on your stomach, you turn your face to breathe. (laughs) Both Jason and his lover are fully nose in the sheets. There's no other place to look but his genuinely beautiful ass. And I honestly don't think that when the writers were writing this scene, they were thinking, oh, we need to show that Jason has ignored Sookie and Sam's calls about his grandmother's death. No, they were like, we needed time in this episode to show Jason's butt. Wait, and 10
0: seconds.
2: Here's an opportunity to do so. And I thank them for that. And I think being gratuitous is the true blood essential and, and here it is in Rare form. Absolutely
1: done. That was gorgeous. That thank was you, very that was a tall order as the guests to go first. And we thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank
2: you. Thank you.
0: Simone
1: Less, the hottest moment of the episode. You now have one minute. Your time starts now. So when
0: Bill's fangs appear in front of Sookie, for some ungodly reason, the, the fact that- Okay, Will is horrified. <laughs> that's why
2: I have to explain I'm it. I'm ready. I'm listening intently. I'm ready.
0: So the scene is set, the Bram Stoker, very much like the vampire. It's all it's soft focus and lighting and candles. And then it looks so beautiful and inviting and warm and luxe. And then his fangs come out because he simply can't control himself. He has to have her. But then he looks so timid and afraid, scared, shy, like boyish in a way. And he's like, oh, and his hair even comes down. Then it looks like kind of boyish. And the way Sookie like grabs him and decidedly kisses his fangs, it seems like very sweet and like gentle and like I am accepting all of you. And she finds emotional and physical intimacy bah, 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 bah. that's time really really good it's really a good. absolutely.
1: yeah I, I vibe with that yeah but i i really enjoyed watching your face willa yeah
2: willa looked horrified i'm i'm a purveyor of film kisses and this is one of my least favorite kisses <laughs> just because they're just i hate the not touching where they're just kind of like both trying to kiss and somehow can't find each other but i i i appreciate this new take And I'm going to relook at this impactful scene with new eyes.
0: Heard. Heard. Thank you. All right, Michelle. I'm I'm so ready. Here we go. Baby, your minute. Hottest moment of the episode starts now.
1: The hottest moment of the episode for me is when Sookie is staring at herself in the mirror, getting dressed in her 1940s nightgown to go over to Bill's. There's something about okay, she does pull out one pin, and we're supposed to believe that was holding her entire up to in. That's fine. The letting the hair down, mm-hmm. I'm a sucker for the like. Cocking her head and taking in the vision of her Mm -hmm. own body and how it will be permanently changed after this experience i'm a sucker for Mm -hmm. and there's like a split second when the funeral dress comes off before the nightgown goes on that you see her taking in herself in her full nudity and that is profoundly attractive to me just staring at yourself and marveling at the miracle of your own body nothing hotter That's a Taurus. That's a Taurus. Oh, I still have 10 seconds, but
0: that's all I have to say. Wow. The
2: miracle of your own body when it's full of pudding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: she looking at that pudding belly yeah that's what she's looking at and saying yes smack (laughs)
2: like a damn drum
0: (laughs) oh
1: my god okay Will, thank you so so much for your time this was such a delight oh thank
2: you for being our thank you guys I'm
1: sure we will love to have you back in the future as well yes and uh, thanks for playing along with us today
2: it's it's always a pleasure to spend such a lovely time with the two sexiest people in any episode which is you two thank
0: you thank you thank you I love you guys have you.
1: A good Have you ever met a more wonderful and beautiful person than Willa Young? No. <laughs> Legitimately? No. <It's> malfunctioning? No. <laughs> such an absolute pleasure to have her on thank you callers for listening if you made it here to the end with us we're so happy that you were willing to indulge us and we hope to have more friends and cohorts joining
0: us on the pod in the future friends, lovers, enemies
1: (laughs) (laughs) maybe someone will bite us you really threw me with that one I had
0: no idea what you
1: were asking
0: well both of you looked at me like I was insane and I was like okay I'm I'm on an island unto myself (laughs) Well, because, okay, sorry. Yes, there is some specificity to it. But also, like, what? You don't like getting bit a little? Yes, but, like, okay, obviously I've been bit. I've been in a relationship for five years. <laughs> like, wow. You hear that, Collar's <laughs> tail fucking bites. Sebastian <laughs> from Walking oh, Dead is a fucking biter. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, wait, that's particularly funny because you know his character dies by having his throat ripped out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're not a spoiler-free podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i got i gotta go we gotta go we, <laughs> we gotta, gotta stop go. this
1: train wreck. what yeah. song
0: should we end with today simone well for the you callers? you brought it up the song that the episode is named for cold ground
1: mm-hmm. the gal
0: 2023 rock and roll hall of fame inductee that is duetting on it is one with cheryl
1: crow yes the song is by rusty truck but cheryl crow is featured do you have a cheryl crow favorite
0: I do. I'm pretty sure it's the same favorite. It Let's is
1: just start singing it at the
0: same time. The chorus. Yes. Yeah. Ready? One, two. <laughs>
1: I'm scared about keys. I'm scared. I'm scared. Anyway, we'll just do it anyway. <laughs> if it makes
0: you happy, it can't be that bad.
1: Once again, callers, thank you so much for supporting us. We are so grateful for you. If you've made it to the end of this episode, please take the time if you have a moment to leave us a review or leave us five stars wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. This podcast is co-hosted by Simone Less and Michelle Martinelli, edited by Michelle Martinelli and consulting producer Theo Rappelsohn. Thank you so much and can't wait to see it in
0: two weeks.